Welcome to Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. In these episodes, we will be highlighting people who are impacted by histories and systemic processes of neglect and disinvestment, but do not often have a seat at the table and may not feel seen. This is a space for people radically reimagining a path forward, but not necessarily a space for those who are unpersuaded by the need for a better world where Black futures matter. We are focused on sharing perspectives that are often unshared or unheard because they challenge what we think we know. In this program, guests are the experts of their own reality. When I was pursuing my doctorate degree, um, I'd actively chosen to focus on um, the work of Black women and girls in community. And I knew both in my own values and intuitively that I wanted the work that Black women and girls were doing in their everyday lives to guide um, what my chosen kind of field or subfield was going to be. Um, so I used to just spend time like literally just being in community, um, whether it was um, being at community events um, held by just well-respected community institutions from Jaxa local churches, or when developments were coming and there were debates in community and the local neighborhood association was going to host an event to have community come present to share their thoughts or perspectives. Um, I was volunteering at one point for the Northside Opportunity, Northside Opportunity, is it Northside Economic Opportunity Network? Um, and I got a chance to really learn more about um, both some of the investment that was coming to West Broadway and Laurie. I did some canvassing of businesses um, as a part of volunteering. I just got to meet folks. And I remember um, in that setting was when I met Ethropic um, E. And I got to learn more about E's story. Um, and at this point, E has now returned to the north side. Um, and I was really blown away um, by this story. In the 1990s, the Holman versus Narrows lawsuit against the Minneapolis Public Housing Authority resulted in a settlement that prompted the demolition of 770 public housing units in the city of Minneapolis, particularly North Minneapolis. As a result of that settlement, a variety of new housing resources, including developments of new units in Minneapolis and the surrounding suburbs were created. In the 90s, when her oldest was in elementary school, Ethropic Burnett and her family became one of the first Black families to take advantage of the opportunity to settle outside of Minneapolis when they moved to Chaska, Minnesota. Ethropic, also known as E, has since returned to North Minneapolis. She's a single mother and has spent more than a decade doing equity and engagement work in the community and now works as a special projects coordinator for the city of Minneapolis. As a part of the home and settlement, there was an opportunity for Black families who were living in the former public housing units to move to scattered South housing opportunities in the suburbs. The conversation around Blackness and concentrated poverty here in Minneapolis and North Minneapolis specifically shifted drastically with the Holman versus Narrow Settlement in 1995. And settlements like this all across the country, in short, made um, close proximity to blackness a problem. 
um, and it encouraged the dismantling and disruption of black communities, moving black folks predominantly to suburban white communities. <laughs> um, and it became a politics that was encouraged um, by folks, I would argue, that saw um, benefit to the land in which black folks were living in, close to downtowns. And I'm curious, just to start the conversation, because you yourself have been a part of this history and this transformation in housing. <laughs> yes. um, as someone who had the opportunity to both live in North, move, and come back as a result of this transformation, my first question to you is, knowing what you know now, what would you have told yourself then? Oh, knowing what I know now, Dr. Lewis, um, I probably wouldn't have took the buyout with the Holman lawsuit um, or took the opportunity housing, um, knowing, looking back on hindsight, um, I probably wouldn't have taken the opportunity housing. Okay. Um, only because it disconnected me. It, uh, that was a lot of some negative things that came along with that opportunity housing, with the home and lawsuit and offering us, um, the ability and opportunity to live in a four tier suburb and be the first um, black family to have this opportunity um, as they kept presenting it. Okay. Um, I, I can see the residue of that with my children and in myself. Okay. Um, and I really appreciate your honesty. I think it's hard when we're having moments reflectively about um, perhaps what we believed at one point and what we know to be true now. You use the word opportunity, and as I'm sure you know, in this move to opportunity movement, that word is used a lot. What did it mean when they were sharing it and actually trying to convince communities of what opportunity was there? And what did it actually end up meaning to you when you got there? Um, the way that it was presented was the same way they're presenting it right now was is, is basically like um, you have an opportunity to live in an area where you are surrounded with um, predominantly, quote-unquote, working-class okay. um, individuals, um, the opportunity to, quote-unquote, have your children in a better education system. Mm. Um, so though there was a lot of uh, the opportunity that was presented with the opportunity zone housing, mm -hmm. um, as if, you know, it would be better for me and my children um, and to have these opportunities. Okay. Um, that's the, that was the word, opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, but as I look back on it, and we've had the, op we had the opportunity to be the first black to live in Chaska, black family live in Chaska, um, live in a brand new development. Um, but with that opportunity, mm -hmm came a lot of things that I did not expect. Okay. This is Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. Disruptive Narratives is a co-production of Camo J and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So 
although I'm very excited to talk more about what you found, I think it's equally as important for us to talk about your pathway to Minneapolis. Well, um, I am from Chicago, Illinois. Um, I was born and raised predominantly in south side of Chicago, the Robert Taylor homes, which are the Chicago Housing um, Authority projects, low income. We call them projects. Um, My grandmother was one of the first, um, one of the first families to move in to opportunity housing in Chicago, Illinois, New Robert Taylor's. Um, My mother um, and my grandmother, they lived in Inglewood. At one point, my great-granddad had a barbershop, and they lived behind the barbershop. And, you know, Inglewood at that particular time was a thriving black community in Chicago, but there was no economic development. That the city and state of the state of Illinois and was investing in um, Inglewood at that time, um, and so they decided to build opportunity housing on State Street in Chicago, Illinois, and it went for approximately. It went from Fifty Fifth and State all the way down to Cermak and State. So that is a, a huge plot of land, huge plot of land um, that was designated um, for public housing. Okay. Okay. Um, how would you describe what it was like growing up there? What was the community and connection like? Um, how are folks both relying and supporting one another in this space? Well, you know, um, for me, growing up in the projects was not a negative connotation. It was nothing negative about living in the projects um, because it was family. It was family. It was village. Uh, we can go next door. Every You know, you can go buy a cup of sugar if you wasn't looked negative upon. Um, people watched other people's children while they uh, sought employment. Um if you got in trouble, everybody got you. <laughs> um, okay. It was it was not negative. It was okay. the family. It was everyone was in there together, and okay. everyone was surviving and living together. Okay. I mean, I asked this question because, as I'm sure you know, there's been a public kind of vilification of public health and communities, um, and there's a lot of whether it's historic accounts or narratives of folks saying that's not exactly how it was. No. Um, I'm curious, in your opinion, when did that public perception begin and why? So I believe, like, living in the Robert Taylor homes in Chicago, Illinois, um, when they first was built, they didn't have the second fence up. So there was a lot of safety things that was going on. You had 16 floors. You had 10 apartments. And so if you do the math, that's a lot of families mm-hmm. in one building. And majority of the time, they have five buildings in one cluster, five or more buildings in one cluster. Um, and so I found at that time, I found I was safe. I was safe. You know, um, I, it wasn't, you know, you know, you can go across the street to the grocery store. You went to schools. And if anything was to happen, if someone was to rob Miss Johnson, they're going to find out who robbed Miss Johnson. Um if, you know, if if you was cutting school, you're going to get caught cutting school and they're going to take you to where you need to be at home and then take you back to school. Mm-hmm. So it was a village. It wasn't unnecessary killing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, everyone 
it was okay to get in line to get a choke sandwich in the summertime because, you know, when summer was out, we didn't have summer programs as they do now. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the first children that well, we used to call them choke sandwiches. And so we called them choke sandwiches because it was so thick that you had to push it down your throat or you're going to choke. <laughs> so we called them choke sandwiches because as you would eat it because you had more bread than you had the bologna or the salami at that time. Right? And we would stand on and they would feed us lunch and they would feed us breakfast in the morning every summer. Um, they would feed us breakfast and they would feed us lunch. And so we had healthy snacks. And so for me, it wasn't negative. It, we was we all was together, mm-hmm. and it wasn't we shared clothes. Mm-hmm. It was it was a village, and we all strive for education. And it wasn't a bad thing to live in low income or quote unquote the projects. And you mentioned earlier this was true until you mentioned like a fence. They put up a fence. Yep. So they the when they first built the uh, Robert Taylor homes, as well as a number of other uh, uh, low income housing in Chicago, like the Cabrini Greens, the Henry Horners, they did not have. They only had that first line of gate, so people was getting thrown over the gate. So they had to pull up a second gate to make for sure that because I, it went up to sixteen floors, and in some builders it went up to twenty floors. So they had to put up the second gate to keep people from getting thrown over or throwing things over. Um, but I will say that we was kind of like in a gated community in so many ways because every, excuse me, everyone had to take care of themselves mm-hmm. and we was all afraid of the police. Um, and at that time, you know, we was taught that we stick together mm-hmm. that, you know, if the police was coming in the building, who they was coming to look for, what, you know, like, um, it was a more of togetherness. It wasn't, a, like I said, it wasn't this senseless, this senseless killing. Um, babies weren't getting straight bullets. Um, they informed us if it was mm-hmm. uh, any type of beef with any other people, they would say, go in the house. All the kids clear the playground and go in the house. What is your thought on the kind of media portrayal of the Robert Taylor? So they didn't really do it justice because, yes, this was a design that the Chicago Housing Authority and HUD decided to come up with. Um, In my mind, uh, as I can hear my grandmother and my great aunt, it was a design to destroy the black family. Mm. And I say that because I could hear... My grandmother, uh, who was married to my grandfather, mm-hmm. my grandfather had a job mm-hmm. at uh, a major factory because at that time factories was really big in Chicago mm-hmm. and Gary, Indiana, working at the steel mill and the candy factories, right? But we lived in the projects, but you couldn't be married. Mm. You couldn't be married. You couldn't say that you was married. You had to use your maiden name, um, your husband. Um, had to li- use a different address. It's very similar to what we are putting on community members right now. Mm. It's the same thing, even with Section 8, even with low-income low housing, when we separate the families, when we tell um, our young women, oh, um, is your baby dad going to live with you? Mm-hmm. You know, and instead of saying your husband, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so to me... That housing model 
was a mechanism to destroy black families. Okay. So you mentioned your grandmother a lot here. Um, I'm curious what you can share with us about her decision to move into this new opportunity space. Um, you already shared a little bit about how she was able to navigate it using her maiden name in order to make sure they had an affordable place to be, but keep her family together. How are they navigating this? And do you believe, just based on her experience living there, that she moved to the best place for her and her family? You know, coming from Inglewood, where there was no economic development, they did not mm-hmm. put money, they they was not um, putting money into um, the housing. Mm-hmm. You know, it slumlords, mm-hmm. <laughs> what we deal with, yeah. right, um, up here in North Minneapolis. Um, and so they didn't put money back into the into the units. And so for my grandmother, it was brand new mm-hmm. as myself, opportunity as myself, mm-hmm. affordability as myself. But not really um, you looking at the fact that I need somewhere safe and mm-hmm. affordable for me and my family to live mm-hmm. and was looking at the opportunity, the dangling thing that they dangle in front of us. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you you sharing this. At what point did you and your family decide leaving Chicago was in your collective best interest? What was happening in your family's lives? Um, what was presumably here in Minneapolis that everyone was seeking? Was it another wave of opportunity? What was it about? Well, for me, um, you know, when I was coming in projects coming up and um I grew up around women and men who actually fought for their rights and actually mm-hmm. understood that what the government did by laboring this huge lot of prop- this huge lot of property as area concentrated property mm-hmm. um, that they now are building on State Street in Chicago <laughs> for the people who live with the little bitty dogs, um, and so um, you know I think about when I lived in Chicago there was no. They they didn't put any investment into the housing at all, mm-hmm. let alone the Chicago public housing. We didn't have, you know, elevators constantly broke, barely had a janitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of no economic into those, uh, into no economic investment. Mm-hmm. And um, everyone around me, it had gotten to the point to where either you were selling drugs or doing drugs. Mm-hmm. You was going to do one or the other. And for me, I knew there was another way. I, I knew that was another way. And, um, you know, I, I could hear older generations saying there's another way. And I knew that that was a, a whole nother life outside of living in projects. I, even though, you know, I was able to go to Ida B. Wells, the, the Icky, the Dearborns, everywhere, travel all through the projects in Chicago, mm-hmm. west side of Chicago. But I also knew that that was another life mm-hmm. because I had I went to one of the best schools and I saw children getting on buses. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand that. Why they get to get on buses and I got to walk across the street? Mm-hmm. Why is it that I had to get tested to get in this school and then the people that live in the projects with me got to go over there, but I get to go over here? I didn't understand that difference, mm-hmm. but I look back on hindsight and that was a way of separating us too. To make us think that, oh, you're better because you get to go to this better school. You don't have to go to the school that the other project kids get to go to. So you're a little bit smarter than them. Okay. Okay. So you made a decision for your life and your family's lives to seek out something better. Why Minneapolis? 
Well, um, I have been here. I had a cousin that lived here, um, and, you know, I came back and forth and visited. And at first, I really wasn't trying to come to Minneapolis. I was like, oh, it's so slow there. (laughs) It's slow. They get more snow. It's cold. They don't come outside. You know, Chicago, Windy City, we still outside. It's always something to do. And I was like, it's nothing to do here. Um, But I will tell you, it was God. It was God, and I was seeking life for my children. I had had my first daughter, and I was pregnant with my second daughter, and I wanted them to to be children. Mm. I didn't want them to be having to walk past Mm. um, uh, paraphernalia. Mm. I didn't want them to be in an environment to where they might be either introduced to selling it or doing it. And I didn't want them to be in an environment also to where uh, they had to make a choice because they wanted some J's. This is Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. Disruptive Narratives is a co-production of Camo J and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. The public housing community that felt so connected and loving has now drastically changed. Yes, of course. <laughs> it has now drastically changed. Um, and I'm here at the time of your exit um, from the projects in Chicago and the city in general. What was the state of the housing there? So they were, at that time... Um, of course, the lawsuit went on. The Chicago public housing okay. lawsuit went on for years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my grandmother and her friends was, you know, they was one of the, the first plaintiffs that signed the petition, okay. right? Um, and so, um, when to show you the mindset at my the mindset of myself at that time when I moved to the Minneapolis, I immediately applied for public housing mm-hmm. okay. because I was coming out of public housing. Right. And my experience was a good experience up until the early, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where that was nothing, mm-hmm. no money being poured into the into our um, housing development. And so I applied and um, came up here to Minneapolis because mm-hmm. I was like, they got housing, is more jobs there, is better. You know, one of my children mm-hmm. had those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um and so I wanted my children to have the opportunity to get on school bus. Okay. And to be able to be kids, to ride their bikes. And so I came to Minneapolis and um I applied at Minneapolis Public Housing. Okay. I I hear so many interesting connections between your grandmother's and mother's experience and your initial experience here in Minneapolis. So it sounds like in Chicago, the Control versus Chicago Housing Authority settlement. Um, your family members were some of the initial petitioners. Yes. Right. I mean, that case in Chicago is what spurred the cases all across the country yes. to deconcentrate property. <laughs> and then you move to Minneapolis, apply for public housing. But this imagery of wanting your children to get on a bus is so powerful. So now you are here. You are in Minneapolis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You are. Here. How was your public housing experience here similar, or different to what you had experienced in Chicago? Well, when I um, when I moved here and I applied for uh, Minneapolis public housing, um, so I was informed uh, 
you guys will probably think it's really crazy, but I I, I was looking forward to to living in the the uh, projects on OSA. Okay. Because they they kind of reminded me of the Ida B. Wells. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, little row house, little townhouses. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't stacked on top of each other, mm-hmm. like the Robert Taylors and Cabrini Greens and other Henry Horners and projects that was back in Chicago. Um, so I was kind of looking forward to it, and it didn't really bother me, you know, because I grew up like that in so many ways, and it, it didn't really bother me. Mm-hmm. And then when I got here, and because I applied, you can back then you was able to apply. You didn't have to live here to apply. You can just apply for public housing. You, well, now you can do it all over on computer now as well. Um, and and I got approved, but they told me I couldn't move in because they was destroying them. What they was going to do was put me on the. Um, mm. I got a part of the Holman lawsuit because I was a. Uh, uh, on the waiting list for public housing and had got approved but couldn't get a unit because of the Holman lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing my investigation about the Holman lawsuit. And I was like, this is the same thing that my grandmother was doing back in Chicago. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this really is going all over. I was like, they really did this all over to us. And I didn't, it didn't make the click until they actually told me, no, this is what's going on. And I was like, oh, my God. This has happened to us really all over the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Describe to me when you say this is happening to us all over the world. What is happening to black people on this wait list? What's happening? Um, what I what I mean is that they was tearing us apart. Um, what I mean that with not making investments um, into the public housing system, making it not just affordable, but making it decent, mm-hmm. making making sure that we th- we think about equity, equality, culture, um, and respecting those things, um, honoring the people that live there, honoring their voices and their concerns and their needs. And that's what I mean by they was doing it all over because they was displacing us. You know, I think about when they first started, um, like, tearing down projects and they was, like, um, sending people. They was giving everybody Section 8. They was passing out Section 8 like it was water. Mm-hmm. It was like the Mayor Byrne uh, Christmas tree she used to give out back in the day. And uh, everybody was getting vouchers. But everybody was moving all over the place. Mm-hmm. It wasn't no—they um, moved a lot of people to southeast. Um, Chicago, and that made became another area of concentrated poverty, um, in which they didn't do no investment once they did that. And so you could see that everybody was getting vouchers to move out, and it was like, oh, it's a good thing. I'm getting my Section 8 voucher. I can hear my cousin saying, yeah, I'm getting my Section 8 voucher. Mm. But she lived on this side. Her mom got one, and she lived on that side. Her sister got one. She lived on that side. And nobody drove. Mm. Nobody had a car. Because why we was all used to getting on a State Street bus that'll take us wherever we need to go. We can get on the Dan Ryan L. We can get on the um, the mm. A-Line or whatever that'll take us everywhere. But now that my cousin over Southeast with her Section 8 voucher, her mama in the Wild Hunters with her Section 8 voucher, her sister over on the West Side with her Section 8 voucher. And so everybody lived and there was no more togetherness. Mm. To hear the second part of our conversation, visit camojfm.com. 
Disruptive Narratives is a production of Camo J Radio and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Made with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, hosted by Dr. Brittany Lewis, produced by Miranda Wilson, edited by Abdi Muhammad, music by Jerome Rankin. <laughs>